Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Anne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 22 of the podcast, the topic is the future of engineering education. Our guest is Bobby Mitra, founding executive director of the new Engineering Education Transformation Initiative at MIT. We talk about the urgent need to update the way we educate our engineers, which is an effort happening at engineering schools worldwide, including at the top schools. The stakes on reimagining education just got higher because of COVID-19. Is there really a need, though, to rebuild engineering education from scratch? Which schools are at the forefront of the experimentation? What will education look like in the next decade? Bobby, how are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, thank you for inviting me to this podcast, Ron. Uh, I'm looking forward to our discussions. You know, uh, one of the unexpected benefits of our brave new world, um, with due apologies to Huxley, is that thing like Zoom and Skype uh, may not work 100% of the time, but they certainly made us come closer at home and at work. So, you know, when you say, how are you doing? I was reading something by the National Society of Professional Engineers, uh, there's a dean from Mississippi State University who says, and I quote, it is strange how we feel closer than ever, he says, while being physically further apart than ever before. I, I think that's that's profound. I, I yeah. found it quite challenging to be forced to be, uh, you know, at a distance, even though, yeah. I, and I'm sure you share, share with yes. me, I, for the last 20 years, I have Absolutely. worked mostly from home in the sense that whenever I can, I have worked mm -hmm. out of wherever I, I am. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. only rational way to work. But when you're forced to do it, it puts a different strain on the technologies you're using. And as I think we were just, you and I ruminating Absolutely. on just a moment ago, just to recap the little discussion we were having, it's one thing to just use these technologies kind of on the side. It's a mm -hmm. whole other thing when they are prime time, the only thing that matters. Great. And I, incidentally, I think this is slightly relevant to the discussion we're going to be having, Bobby, but let me, mm -hmm. let me kick this off a little bit. I wanted sure. to just round up uh, a little bit of your background because, you know, you are, you know, currently the founding executive director of a very exciting initiative called the New Engineering Education Transformation Mm -hmm. um, initiative at, at MIT. But the point with the background that I wanted to bring out is you have been in engineering and learning for a long time. You've worked in this outfit called NIIT, a learning outsourcing company. Mm -hmm. um, but recently, and before you sort of came back to MIT, right, you have founded and been part of building out a new institute of technology. Mm -hmm. And I, I would really... Love to explore that uh, as well as, as we get into this uh, discussion. Sure. Can we um, just unpack some of this background? What, what job or educational experience in your wide background would you say is the most relevant to what you're doing right now and what has kind of taught you the most? Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, I do have a wide background, but it's, it's a very focused background. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, so, you know, what I really enjoy doing is evangelizing and implementing a vision, an education vision, and taking it through to fruition. You know, planning it, designing it, setting it up, uh, running it like a startup, um, completing the cycle, improving it, you know, and moving on. 
So if I take that as a theme, uh, and, you know, I worked, as you said, in the corporate world and in higher ed, both the U.S. and India, uh, helped found an NGO, Pan Himalayan Grassroots Development Foundation, which is very interesting. I've traveled to over 25 countries, but, you know, you know what that feels like. You've traveled to over 50 countries and you speak six languages. So, you know, you have a sense of the world uh, that people living in one country don't. So here's what, you know, just to abstract. So if I look at NEAT, what have I learned professionally? I've learned that it's very important to understand the culture of your institution and evangelize the vision. Yeah. So here's an example. You know, we tend to treat uh, curriculum changes as curriculum changes, mm. as opposed to you're actually initiating a change process. So in that in that you know in that mode, you don't go to Professor X Y Z and tell her, "Hey, you don't know how to teach. You should be using active learning or actual learning." Right? I mean, that's the start of you know nothing, no cooperation. You don't immediately think of spending three years to create a new degree program without knowing if anyone will walk into it. So you really have to understand the culture and how do you move forward. So one of the things that we discussed before NEAT was launched with NEAT was if we can find a way to pilot this, which does not ask us to go to any faculty governance committees for approvals, that would be terrific. Of course, we'll go to everyone, we'll talk to everyone, we'll listen to them. But if you get through an approval process, then you're you're bound into something. India, uh, so BML, Munjal University, uh, near New Delhi, on the Delhi-Jaipur Highway, um, a full-fledged university started with engineering, I was the founding dean. So in less developed countries uh, than the US or Norway or India, for example, you have to have a plan A, B, C, and D because the infrastructure just does not support having only a plan A and a plan B. So what I learned is that this really forces you to become more creative, to use your ingenuity a lot more. You know, the management gurus call that jugar, which is a Hindi Gujarati word for gathering things together and making it happen. But it really helps you to do that because you have limited resources and limited infrastructure. Uh, Bits Pilani, Birla Institute of Technology and Science Pilani, which is the leading private engineering school in India, similar to the IITs, which are state-funded. Um, when we started distance learning there, that predated the internet. There was no direct dialing in India. You had to book a telephone call. It would take three days. And everything happened through snail mail. So you really had to think through as to what you're trying to create. Who's the learner? She's sitting somewhere a hundred you know, thousand miles away. And that also forced you to look at how do you create that experience. So I think putting all this together, um, the corporate world was, was a very different, very fascinating experience. And I am what I learned there is how to listen to customers and to potential customers. And it took a while, you know, listening is not just hearing as you know. And that, you know, I really learned through that process, how do you first figure out what the problem is as opposed to jumping to a solution? And then you figure out, work with the team and, you know, and make it happen. And finally, from this NGO, which very close friends of mine started up and which is doing extremely well, you know, I learned that really sustainable development, self-reliance has to be tied to financial empowerment, right? And that right. rolling out funds is not a sustainable approach. So we created a cooperative called Umang in the Himalayan mountains in India, run by women. It's exporting uh, jam, jelly, honey, apricot oil, sweaters, 
in outside India, all the profits go back to the women who are running the corporate. Wow. So... Well, there's so many things to pick up here. I wanted to just pick up on one of those, uh, which I want to talk about later as well, which is not kind of, you, you said, don't start telling professors that they need to you know, use active or action yeah. learning. It's an interesting point because, you know, so much of this pedagogical theory, right? And th there could be novel paradigms and they're slightly threatening to educators in the sense that, mm -hmm. you know, they don't follow the language that a teacher, uh, you know, even an advanced engineering teacher wouldn't, wouldn't have been brushed up on the latest concepts in the teaching field. And maybe that's its own discussion, but so then how do you still communicate with a broad scope and specter of faculty across disciplines without having the language because the point of these action learning and you know any language uh, where you're talking about learning the point is of course as the practitioners of, the, of those paradigms would tell you the point is not to disenfranchise people it's just to have a common language so right. when you in the absence of a common language how do you even talk about what you want to achieve so uh, i think to begin with you have to be patient because the process of finding a more common language, you know, there is a common language in academia, and, you know, but finding a language that is, that will bring more constituencies together, it's, it's, a, it's a long process. It's not an overnight process, right? So to give you a very concrete example, um, you have to first recognize, you know, if you go to somebody and say, do things differently, the natural reaction, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to be, hey, what do you know? I'm the expert in the world on this, right? The other part is building that community. So we've learned from NEAT, you know, we, it's like a startup. We decided we start with the pilot that has every chances of working based on our data collection and, you know, thinking and experience. Learn from that, listen to people, improve and move on. Right? It's a process. And I, you know, I, I have seen uh, wherever I've been that if you have the patience and sort of look at it longer term, and start that process, which really looks at what's the culture of the institution. You know, BML Munjal University, brand new school, sponsored by a family called the Munjals, they create hero motorcycles and bicycles, right? Very different culture from very industrial culture, right? So it's very important to communicate across disciplines, constituencies, but it's also equally important to know that you're not the one who's doing it. You know, the faculty at MIT, if this is sustainable, if neat or any other innovation, the faculty at MIT will take it forward. So that's a great. That's a great point. That's a great point. So let's move into into the meat of the matter here. Engineering education. What what is engineering education? It might seem like a pretty basic question, but but I think that's the question you're actually putting into uh, focus here. So what is engineering education? So engineering education is the education required to graduate an engineer uh, who's able to create and make things happen with certain attributes. So that's, you know, very simplistic way of looking at it. Um, I think what has happened over time, and this sort of thing happened after, I think, after World War II, um, engineering was far more practical before that, engineering education, right? I mean, it began as a vocation, it began as skills, then it became, you know, disciplines and so on. Um, but the advances we made in this country uh, at that point of time shifted the focus to engineering science, which is critical. 
but it, you know, it's not so applicable. So I think the, the crux of it is that engineering, you know, there's nothing wrong with our education system. It's just that it needs to be more relevant. It needs to be more engaging. And it needs to focus on larger societal problems, you know, sustainability, energy, health. COVID-19 is a great example. You know, completely, we were completely unprepared as a community, you know, um, education and so on. And I think the other part is, is more sort of emotional that we really don't think education should be enjoyable at the tertiary level. We think, you know, to be rigorous, it has to be painful. If I don't, so when you say we, the collective we, you mean kind of the 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 understanding in the current engineering schools, even the best ones. Absolutely, and you know, beyond engineering, I think the understanding in higher education in general is that it, it right. We groom people to say, you know, you're going to become a rocket engine, you know, a rocket scientist, and that's going to be hard and grueling. But but right, if you make right. it, you, you know, you'll be famous and you'll send people to the moon. So yeah, so and tell me that went up to Mars this morning. You know, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so what does engineering education then look like today? You charted the path from the Second World War, but up to date, give us a picture of, of 2020, right? So there's a certain increased amount of rigor and science you, you, you pointed out. Mm-hmm. It's not as exciting, I think you, you, you sort of said, as, as it should be, and it's not as relevant as it should be in terms of societal mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the attributes that you would say it does have? Because, you know, after all, we are sending people you sure. know, to, to the moon sure. and, and yeah. we are uh, building, you know, cars of the future. So something yeah. Yeah. good is happening. So, yeah. So before I step into that, uh, the, the flip side of painful education or education painful is, is joy. So I'll give you two small examples. I launched a class a course at Munjal University in India called The Joy of Engineering. And the goal was very clear. We stated it publicly and privately. Groups of four students, first-year students, working in teams to create small projects that require you to go talk to somebody, learn something, uh, you know, craft something in the workshop using a wood lathe or program something. Get them engaged. At uh, at Meet uh, this fall, we are offering a new class called "Discover the Magic of the Neat Ways of Thinking." Now we could have called it "Learn Critical Thinking, Learn Creative," and you know, and so on and so forth. But they, you have to engage, you have to create that. So I think that's one thing moving forward that's going to be very important. Right. What does the future look like? I mean, the future has changed in the le- you know since mid March or whenever whatever the official <laughs> COVID onwards date is. Um, COVID has caused a seismic upheaval. I mean, it's yeah. not even uh, you know uh, that's not even the right word. But I think the point is that from that perspective. The future is here. It's evolving. It's changing. So we don't quite know what the future is right now. I mean, it's it's disconcerting, but that's the reality. Nobody yeah. can stay with any certainty. Vaccine, yeah, blah blah blah. But before we get into the future, because I do want to talk very specifically about the kind of the post-COVID engineering education and and also what what you're dealing with, even yeah. even just right now in terms of sure. bringing students back to school. But let's let's go into your program. So MIT has this program called Neat. Mm-hmm. How um, how did it get off the ground? Who started it? And uh, so w- this was back in, you know, a couple of years ago, a little bit more. Uh, summer of 2016 is when it was chartered. Yeah. So it's a surprise to many, uh, including me, that 
MIT needs to get better at teaching engineering. And I, and I say that as someone who's, you know, intimately familiar with the school and, you know, I would say generally students there seem pretty happy, right? Uh, uh, There's of course all kinds of issues, but why does MIT need to get better at teaching engineering? And, And that must have been a hard sell in the sense that that couldn't possibly have been a completely shared observation, or at least mm-hmm. it hasn't percolated into the branding, right? So there's a disconnect sure. there between what people think of as MIT and then the fact that the institution or somebody goes into their own quarters and reflects mm-hmm. and thinks, you know, we should get better at this. Mm-hmm. Or is it just natural? Is it just what MIT always does, which is, you know, we always going to want to get better? How, how did this come about? Well, it's a bit of both. So, you know, I had the same question when I was being interviewed for this position in the summer of 16. Um, I, you know, I, I have a you know, great time setting up this university, but my family, we live in Boston, and they gave me an ultimatum. Grow do it, that baby or come back and look after your family. So, you know, I, I came back. Um, so I asked that question of Ed Crawley and Peko Hosei, who were the faculty co-leaders. Um, Ed, at that time, was winding, he'd set up Skull Tech University in uh, Moscow as, as the founding president. He was winding that his assignment up, coming back to home. Uh, Peko was the associate head of mechanical engineering, our second largest department. Very good sense of how MIT works. But I say, you know, if it, you know, MIT engineering is one of the biggest global brands, you know, why are you folks tinkering with it? And it was interesting what I heard. The first thing I heard was that faculty at MIT have been feeling for a while that we should be get more systemic in innovating in education. Now, you know, you know MIT very well. You studied here, you taught here, you worked here. Uh, every faculty at MIT pretty much is innovating when she goes in to teach her class, whether she's teaching it for the second time or the second class the first time, bringing in her own research, bringing in research in the community, what's happening. So, you know, there's no quarrel there. That's why MIT students have no problem being in these classes. But we haven't changed systemically in the last 40 years. The last time something came in systemically was modern biology, which I think was 30 years ago. Wow. The other thing that I heard was that we need to provide more options to our students. So I can do a major or a double major or a major and a minor, but that's pretty much what I can do. But I really don't have any options to, to gain credentials in a planned way in something that's cross-cutting and cross-disciplinary. And then, of course, MIT, you know, MIT wants to always contribute to the world, strengthen education. And I think finally, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, which is that, you know, my experience with institutions like MIT is that they're always looking to see how they can sort of obsolete themselves, not in a dramatic way, but how you build things, see things that will look at the future very differently and learn from that, you know, infect the mainstream positively and change. So I want to go into some of the the programs that you then that you then built. But before that, I wanted to take this detour because I was reading uh, the report that I believe spearheaded this initiative this morning, or at least the report that came out in 2018. So maybe that was actually charted in the in mid course. Anyway, the report is called "The Global State of the Art in Engineering Education." It was commissioned by MIT, I believe, mm-hmm. and I was just reading it, and uh, some, something struck me. And I wanted to check those out with you because the report went through a bunch of engineering schools. Some of them are 
kind of the usual suspects. Uh, it, it mentioned MIT and Stanford. Sure. Then it started talking about some schools that that I actually know quite well because they're in my uh, you know neck of the woods. I mean, one of them, uh, you know, Olin, which is just Olin College, a new, new college, right. uh, just where I live right now here in Wellesley mm-hmm. uh, and Needham. But the others were Aalborg University in Denmark and TU Delft, which is a Dutch university. So my question is really, which, which schools should we be looking at when we're thinking about the future of engineering education? And, and when we are looking at them, to what extent is it the good old excellent brands, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, MITs and the Stanfords that are charting the new way here? Sure. And to what extent is it newer schools or, in fact, completely new schools? Um, so how can you unpack that for me? I mean, should we really be looking at MIT for excellence in, in new ways of teaching? Or should we be looking at Olin, which, from what I understand, was a completely new college created with the idea that there's a lot of things wrong with engineering education. We need to start from scratch. Yeah. And Olin is a great experiment. In fact, their founding president, Rick Perry, uh, he retired recently. Uh, he did his PhD at MIT and he's back here as an honorary professor. So, you know, we're going to engage with him. Uh, so Olin is part of that study. But the larger question is, so uh, Ruth Graham, who's an international consultant uh, out of UK, who uh, worked on the study that NEET had commissioned because we wanted to benchmark, you know, around the world. Um uh, the set of parameters. The parameters include of, included, of course, established. It included new and upcoming. It included global. And these parameters sort of evolved from, I think, the 150-odd uh, thought leaders that Ruth interviewed, either personally or you know, over some, uh, some medium. So here's an example. There's a, an institution called the Charles Sturt, S-T-U-R-T, University in Australia. Nobody heard about it. Their model is you come to campus for the first year of a four-year degree program, and then you're working in industry for the next, next three years, and you're learning through virtual learning, right? It's very new. Wow. Right? Th- that, would, th- that would almost seem perfect for, for COVID. Of course, they're now uh, not really learning because they're all sitting in their, you know, in their do- <laughs> parents' basement. Yeah, okay. Touch with the folks I know. That. That's a good point and find out how they're dealing with this. Exactly. So that's an example. Uh, Alberg. So they looked at Alberg because that's the home for project-based learning. They sort of created it, if you will, and they've done it rigorously over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, Delft, I mean, phenomenal connection with industry in that city through, you know, through, through planning. MIT, they looked at NEAT and many other innovative things happening. Uh, Stanford, they looked at the broader approach, more holistic approach to education. So PUC Chile, which is known, but you know it's not a household name. Um, University College London, UCL, another great experiment. Comparable in size to MIT, they completely overhauled their undergraduate education over a six to eight year period, completely. And they changed from us, you know, if we were to change from a semester to a quarter with different pedagogies, that's what they did. So what this study identified through the eyes of thought leaders worldwide and other data were examples, some of whom have happened to be global brands like MIT and Stanford and UCL and so on, and some are not. But each had a strength that they brought to bear. See, this is what I, I kind of picked up in the report, is that what you're looking at different aspects. And when you optimize for different aspects, 
not everybody can be best in everything. And like you pointed out, you know, Oldborg, uh, you know, pioneered project-based learning. So there are all of these kind of, I guess McKinsey would call them uh, diamonds or whatever. You know, it's like yeah. these, uh, these, uh, these spikes in, in, in different capabilities True. that, uh, you know, we all try to be the best at what we can be the best at. So what's the lesson there? I mean, I actually didn't, didn't make it to the end of that report. What, mm-hmm. what's, uh, what was the outcome of that report? I mean, you, were, you had already just started this program Right. What's the conclusion from such a study then? Is it that uh, we can incorporate many of these models or, or is the lesson that we just have to find our own way and that every institution has all these different, um, you know, contexts yeah. that, that, that you have to take into account and you have to basically tailor your excellence to, to the possibilities, you know, mm-hmm. around you. So, so, uh, we commissioned this report at NEEC because we wanted to find out independently, uh, you know, objectively with our getting into the picture as to what, you know, what are some of those diamonds around the world. Right? Um, a bun- and, and, and by the way, the, the two graphs there, so they're the ranking, you know, all ranking the rankings, right? Of uh, existing institutions and MIT is way up there. I don't know if you saw that part. MIT doesn't figure in the ranking of uh, innovative new upcoming Olin, of course, leads that ranking. Okay. So it sort of reinforced that we have not been contributing to innovation in education worldwide. But that, you know, that's a separate point. What we learned is, is different aspects of that. We picked up Alberg's project-based learning approach, which we knew about, but the study really helped us to zone in on which other two or three things that would be important for us. Right? We understood how complex it is to deliver PBL and looked at simpler ways of doing it. Give you an example. There's a design class, 3007, MIT World Numbers, right? Which is the first class that uh, needs students and renewable energy machines and advanced material machines take introduction to design, right? So instead of getting into complicated software and, and hardware, you know, they do exercises like, uh, how would you create a cutting board for a visually impaired person? Huh. And it's a fascinating, pro- it doesn't cost any money. I mean, you know, one piece of wood with something, right? Sure. These are the things that we learned from Arbor, for example. Moving forward, uh, NEAT is going to be teaching nine specific NEAT sort of classes this fall. And what we are doing is we are sending out little kits to our students wherever in the world they are. And they'll be able to do some bit of hands-on design sitting in their homes or their dorms or, you know, wherever they are situated with discussion with our instructors and faculty and other students over Zoom and other things. Now, yeah. I, I don't think we would have gotten to that point if we hadn't learned what we learned from all for example. Charles Sturt is fascinating. We are really waiting to learn. It's, it's very new. Uh, Singapore University of Technology and Development, SUTD, started up by MIT with the government of Singapore, does not offer degree programs in mechanical, chemical, and so on. They have degrees in production, production design, production management. We learned how complicated it is to create degree programs in brand new areas where nobody knows whether that graduate is going to get a job. You know, I mean, that's the first thing, right? So that led to our looking to NEET not being a degree program. It's a certificate program. So if you're a student in NEET, you'll graduate in four years with a major aeronautical and astronautical engineering or chemical or, or what have you. And you'll get a NEET certificate with a capital C 
um, through the sophomore, junior, senior years that you are within NEAT in renewable energy machines or advanced materials machines or living machines or autonomous machines or the latest, which has gone beyond engineering, digital cities with the Department of Development. So that that's so 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 we picked up uh, <clears throat> we picked up sort of broad approaches and we picked up a lot of detailed uh, examples which really helped us. Struggling to crack the code on innovation? Don't look too hard. Buy the book. Disruption Games How to Thrive on Serial Failure by Trond Unheim was published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Common Wisdom says that success breeds success. However, what if only repeated failure does? The author has followed thousands of founders and startups at MIT and beyond as they struggle, pivot, fail, or succeed. The secret? Training as if for the Olympics with the top mentors, being in the right places, and deeply examining what you learn along the way. The biosphere of innovation cannot be a template between R&D, innovation labs, partnerships, startup scouting, corporate venturing, accelerators, or open innovation. You never know where the breakthrough starts. Thriving on failure is the way of science. In four moves, get exposed to disruption, take or simulate risk, persist until point of failure, reflect and recover. Buy the book anywhere books are sold and learn more at disruptiongames.com. So tell me then a little bit about the uh, the details of the, of the of these each of these programs. So I, sure. I I'm uh, going to relist them here again. So I'd, I'd, let's take advanced materials machines. Mm-hmm. What's the approach? Uh, give me an example of what they could be doing there. Uh, I mean, you you said to me earlier in a, uh, our pre-discussion, you said you could start with a sheet of aluminum and end up with a robot. I don't know if that was in in, in advanced materials machines, but it would seem to me to be a. I mean, that's a cool sentence, but yeah. it, could that really happen? It is happening, and it's been happening for a while. But uh, so 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 what? What is neat? New engineering education transformation. There are four basic principles. We're looking to identify what are the new machines and systems of the future that we need to bring into our curriculum that our graduates need to work on and design and create. And is the and is the presumption there that the metaphor machine uh, is actually not really a metaphor? It is truly what an engineer does is create and understand machines. Is, the, is that the idea for that particular? Absolutely. So it could be mechanical, it could be molecular, it could be biological, it could be informational, it could be energetic, and it, it's not a thing, but it's something. It's thing that engineers create. Right. So a great you know great example of that is look at aeronautics and astronautics. The old machine is the iconic jumbo jet. I think it was officially retired last year or this year after 50 years. I mean, you know, phenomenal plane. It's part of our, our mythology. But flown by a human being on kerosene, you know, metal body. The new machine are things like quadcopters, running on electricity, composites, no human being. But, you know, we looked at curricula of, <clears throat> excuse me, several institutions, including ours, and they're still geared toward designing and creating and manufacturing the jumbo jet. Right? Yeah. So that's an example of new machine. If you look at advanced uh, materials machines, the uh, the new machine there began with 3D printers. Right? So, but that's not so new now. But expansions of that, right? So that's that's a whole domain. The but, but see, I want to stop you there. So because 3D printing is a 
space where MIT has spawned an enormous amount of startups. I mean, I've worked with like four, four or five of them. So it's just striking to me that you need to innovate precisely in a field where MIT arguably has produced beyond state of the art and, you know, has been at least students from there and, and some faculty have spun out ventures based on that approach. But yet you think that the teaching still could advance and become more practical and, and action oriented. And so how does that work? Like when you are in a neat yeah. class, what is the difference? So uh, put me in a regular class at MIT studying materials and machines and put me in a neat class studying okay. the same thing. What, what am I, what's the A and B test here? So, <clears throat> so here, here are a couple of examples. And, and you know, all the faculty that you know and I know that have started companies are very successful. The classes they teach, they bring in all that knowledge into that class, you know, which just makes it really exciting. But it's not happening across the system. So here's an example. Ah, um, so what you're saying is there, there, there have been these excellent spikes. So these, these people who, who founded these companies have probably just lucked out to be at the right moment with the right exciting professor yeah, yeah. and got happenstance plugged into something exciting. But Absolutely. you want to make it systemic. We want to make it systemic. And I think the basic difference between if I'm in the NEAT program and I'm in you know, a regular major at MIT, of course, to mechanical and whatever, whatever regular at MIT means. Um, here's what I would be doing differently. I would be doing a set of projects in that domain. So autonomous machine, the domain of autonomy and robotics. Those projects would form the scaffolding of the sophomore, junior, senior year, four credit, 12 units, you know, big chunk of time for a semester. And they would cascade in complexity. So here's the example you brought up. So as a sophomore, sophomore spring and autonomous machines, students from mechanical engineering, electrical and computer science, and aeroastro start with sheet aluminum, work in, in as individuals, not in teams, but working together in a lab, and come out at the end of the day with a walking, talking, dancing thing. Here's By the way, what's the distinction between a material machine and an autonomous machine in this in this context? Um, so the theme is machines. Uh, as you would have guessed by now, except for digital cities, which sort of gone beyond machines. Uh, what we learned again, stepping back, is uh, you have to you have to brand what you're doing to some extent. Neat. Right, way of thinking, capital W, capital T, machines and systems, and there has to be substance behind that branding. Otherwise, you don't you know it's worth pointing. But but machines are a cooler branding than systems because you know if I think about old school engineering education, it was all about systems. Yeah, uh, and systems is hot in some other circles, but for for your purposes, machines is 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 even better. True. But you know why we added systems to machines? Because we found that there are a lot of people for whom machines meant mechanical things and they could not visualize anything beyond that. So that's where we brought in system and said it's not just, you know, a tangible artifact. So that's one example. So and now uh, to make it interesting. And by the way, this is derived from an iconic class at MIT 2007, taught by Woody way back, now taught by Amos and Sangbe, is the game board 50th year of the moon landing. I think that was last year year before. So they created this robot, which was on a game board, which was the lunar landscape. Robot had to go pick moon rocks, rub them somewhere, plant the flag, do something, right? In their junior spring, the same group of students work on a more complicated, now they work as a team project where they learn how to program 
a, a vehicle, a small sort of car, four by four yeah. feet, USB, right? So that's software. In their senior year, and the first cohort came out this spring, which was amazing. I can't believe that it's just been three years. Um, was they put something together which involved hardware and software, spent the fall semester thinking about it through a seminar, did the project in senior year. Now, there are umpteen classes at MIT that have great projects. Yeah. But this, but uh, any major specifically would not have a sequence of this kind. So that's one distinction. The second difference is that you know, we, we all teach uh, critical thinking and creative thinking, you know, in different ways. But we, it's complicated. Yeah. So we brought in, so we, we called it the ways of thinking, critical, creative, systems thinking, humanistic, and so on. Because that's what our students will go away with, hopefully. Got it. Just, we're not going to go through all of them, but digital cities, yeah. living machines, and renewable energy machines. Just give me mm-hmm. a snapshot of m- maybe one more of them and, and what they're actually, <laughs> what these machines are. So digital cities, sure. you, couldn't, you couldn't invent a machine <laughs> metaphor for that area. Okay, so here's an example of what the digital cities sophomores did this spring when we pivoted from in-person to virtual uh, in a lab class called Urban and Environmental Technology Implementation. They uh, did projects in their homes or wherever they were living to monitor indoor air quality using sensors in the kitchen when they were cooking or their friends were cooking or they were making their favorite dishes. If you translate that to how do you monitor air quality in a city, that's very much a part of how do you create technology for the public good. Just one small example. If you look at uh, advanced materials, where the, you know, the focus really is on, as the word says, novel materials, technology, fabrication, and manufacturing, um, the introduction to design class that I shared with you, they created a system to 3D print custom widgets that can be attached to a combination lock so the user could easily unlock it without being able to read the dial. This was an assistive device like the you know, uh, cutting board for visually impaired people. Two examples. So in... in in advanced material, they're using materials to go to that point. In digital city, they're using thinking around that as to what do I do to improve the city. So it's being driven by the domain. Got it. So, so this is a series of, I believe, 12-unit kind of unrestricted elective classes uh, mm-hmm. that they take throughout a three-year program. And But there's also a weekly seminar and you have guest speakers. To what extent would you say that, because this is often touted by... Uh, by people saying, well, you got to innovate, bring in externals. But, you know, isn't the problem when you bring in a- external speakers too much that the the meat of the matter, the context disappears a little bit, uh, unless you're saying the context is the external context. Yes. So you have to design the course to bring in external speakers or other, uh, you know, uh, ways that students can learn so that it's part of a plan, it's part of a syllabus, it's part of, you know, so if you bring in random speakers, however great they are, it, it's it's not coherent. So as an example, in advanced materials machines, you know, uh, Craig Carter, professor in material science, also started his own company with some colleagues. He's come in to talk about his research and the company that he started. Got the it. students went to Siemens and uh, BMW or BMW uh, in Germany last summer, advanced materials students, to look at how materials are being processed. Again, part of the the larger design of that domain. So, and you know, students learn. You know, you know, a lot of good learning is theater. So, students will listen to a fresh, uh, recent graduate from MIT who's working at Google, 
intently. They'll all come. They'll you know they'll do what they have to do. But you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nobel laureate. I'm just you know, taking an extreme example. White hair walks in and says something. They may not even listen to her or him. Right. So the the things. Yeah, I, I got it. So w- w- we said that we wouldn't maybe, uh, you know, load this discussion with too many sort of concepts because some of these learning concepts actually uh, hurts more than they help in, in, in terms of getting the moving the field forward. However, there's one exception, metacognition, metacognitive thinking. What does that entail? It was a term you used to me. Um, I happen to be p- quite fascinated by it, but I also recognize that this is a anytime you put meta into a, into a concept yeah. you're a little bit in trouble so yeah. metacognitive thinking so you know that's another word for critical thinking they mean pretty much the same and critical thinking is something we are far more used to to understand so i'm just you know if i were to look at a definition um, critical thinking is assessing the worth or validity of a concept or a product or a process by analyzing and evaluating information Gain from observation, experience, communication, and, and thinking. Right. <clears throat> um, here's an example of an exercise that is being used to help students learn critical thinking. So the project is evaluating the quality of sources on the internet. You know, we are in a Google generation. You Google it, you look at the first page, you take that as gospel truth, and you run with it, and you know, hopefully, you do the right things. But this is an exercise students would go through. They would first look at, they'd be given three or four articles from, you know, wikis, website, journals, uh, you know, communication. They'd be asked questions like, you know, and this is an exercise. Who has written this? Who has checked to make sure that it's correct? Yeah. Why should I believe them? Um, <laughs> right. When was it written? So there's a bunch of questions, which are a rubric, you know, which and there's nothing complicated about it. You get them to ask those questions of that process. And the more you do that, the more you, it's practice. There's no, you know. So the thing with NEAT is through the seminars, because they're in NEAT for three years, there's an opportunity to build on these things. You start with a sophomore, you learn some of it, you know, you, you keep learning and practicing. But yeah. So, so I know, I know you just, uh, yeah. I know you just graduated your, your cohort. So I don't know yeah. to what extent this is actually possible, but uh, I'm interested in the outcomes. What, you know, what have you learned so far? Ha- has there been startups or actual sort of physical products or machines coming out of these classes beyond prototypes? Or would you say you're very happy just with having great prototypes and, 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 and basically, you know, tell me a little bit about the feedback from the students and from the environment around NEAT. Okay. So uh, I discovered or we discovered that there are, there are two startups, and this is amazing, that NEAT students started in the junior year. Okay, and I, I can you know I uh, can get the details. So whether they were influenced by NEAT or whether they would have done it otherwise, you know, but you know it NEAT helped to to foster that. But stepping back, so our approach was, hey, build something that students are likely to come to and see value in, learn from that, pilot it, and 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 you know keep and move on. So there are two hundred twenty three students in four cohorts, including the twenty six who graduated this spring. I mean, that's one of the largest sort of undergraduate academic groupings. It's not a degree program at MIT, and it's larger than many majors. So clearly there's traction. Um, We are finding that students like NEAT because they like the interdisciplinary community. Now, that was a revelation. Community didn't figure in our lexicon design, you know, 
when we were spending a year, year and a half looking at what meat could be. But they said, we love the fact that I'm in chemical engineering, biological, shields, and physics. We're coming together in their seminar, talking about things across, learning each other's language, right? They, of course, like the fact that there are projects, you know, that's the main thing that do. And they said that they feel their career, whether they go to graduate school or job or startup or whatever, will be improved through need. Now that, you know, I mean, I'll take that with a pinch of salt. I would love for that to happen, but that there's absolutely no data. And we'll see how that happens, right? The other interesting thing is that in the first cohort, there were 46% comprised women. That has grown to 72% in the, in the, you know, incoming cohort where there are about 92 students. Really? (laughs) That's a staggering number. It's a staggering number. And I, I wish we could take credit for the whole thing. But, you know, we've been starting to look at now, you know, how do you convert from a pilot to a sustainable model? So there's data we're analyzing, we're looking at trends, patterns, what kind of students come to us. This is staggering. So, you know, we're going to figure out where that came from. Um, there are over fa- 42 faculty engaged. Uh, GM, General Motors, and Boeing are founding co-sponsors of the autonomous machines thread. And, you know, it's starting to attract other threads too. Um, there are three schools and 12 departments at MIT on board. And I think very important, and that was partly, you know, you talked about the global benchmarking study. Part of that was to start to engage with our peer community. Because in academia, I mean, you do whatever you do, but if you're not recognized, respected in the peer community, you can't make headway. So we've had papers, peer-reviewed papers in the American Society of Engineering Education annual conference three years in a row. Again, you know, planned from the get-go. So there is traction. Uh, Things are moving in the right direction. But, you know, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of questions, uh, you know, about, you know, your advice for other colleges that are trying mm-hmm. to embark on something like this. But before th- we, we get to sort of like the future and advising people, sure. um, let's talk about what you just said uh, 10 minutes ago, which was COVID has changed everything. Tell me how, so you've had three months of COVID, right? At, at MIT. How did that impact NEAT? And and now going forward, as we're going into another school year, another academic year, which is just about to start, mm-hmm. where realistically, you know, at least in, in, you know, in this country, we're dealing with COVID in a massive, massive way. How yeah. has this changed engineering education? How will it change engineering education? This pure COVID factor. So it's affecting everything from enrollment to, uh, you know, uh, residency on campus to creating groups. Um, You know, it's a bad situation either way. There are no good choices. You know, we're all trying to make choices. Um, We, like everybody else, pivoted almost at a moment's notice. We had about a week to pivot from in-person to virtual. So I think what we've learned over the two and a half months of virtual, and by the way, my, my younger child uh, is a rising senior in a, another school. He's in the, in the room next to me uh, learning. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> We're I'm all just yes, yeah. I'm learning, asking him, you know, how's it going? What are you finding? So it's been interesting you know, as an educator, as a parent. But so what we learned is that uh, just sort of one-way communication, you know, direct, you know, it doesn't work. You have to figure out how to engage. It is more complicated to engage a learner who's sitting in New Delhi, India from here than it is if she was in my classroom at MIT, you know, in building 16 or something. Right? So you have, to, you have to design sort of better. You have to think more about education, less about technology. I think we've, 
you know, the whole well, you have much less infrastructure to work with, right? Because you can't expect people are allowed to walk outside. You can't expect Absolutely. they can go to the Absolutely. store and buy stuff at an electronic shop. Absolutely. They may not even get access to the sensors you're asking them to experiment True. with. True. I mean, I could just see 15 challenges just right off the bat. Oh, absolutely. So the the sensors and kits that like, we talked about, what we are doing is we are sourcing it directly from the manufacturer and sh- sh- it'll get shipped directly to the student at his or her location. Right, that, which means you yeah. have to prepare it weeks in advance, but, but at absolutely. least if you have those connections, you can get some stuff absolutely. done. So yeah. as Neat, we started thinking about this we had started thinking about what's the next sort of version of meat, right? In almost three years, we've learned from this. We learned from students that, yeah, they like all these things, but they don't want a lot of extra heavy lifting. They want, don't want to do four project classes on top of what they have to do for their majors, right? They want yeah. more options. That's when we discovered that there were students who created their own company. So now in NEAT, if you created your own company and is doing what, you know, in that domain, you can swap that out for an on-campus NEAT project. As uh-huh. an example of the change. That's that an incentive. So it was just fortuitous. You know, we launched these new changes early April, just after we pivoted. So NEAT was much better prepared for the future, so to say, because we've been thinking about it and, you know, it takes a while. It took us six months to get to that point. So I think the, the, the thing is that you, you see what you can minimize. Um, it is difficult to do hands-on, project-based learning, project-centric, if you're at a distance. But if you go beyond that and say, what's my goal? My goal is to engage that student and have her or him learn something that's relevant to them, you know, out in the real world. Right? I mean, service students. Right? If you look at that, then you start thinking of, you think of Jugard. You don't necessarily think of, you know, how do I set up an expensive lab where they can learn all this. Right? You think of Jugard with the goal being, here are some learning outcomes. Right? So I think what it will do which is for the better, it will force all of us across the world to really think more deeply about the person and about education and what is it we want that learner to learn. That's incredible because personalized education has just been, uh, you know, that's another one of these words that we could have, you know, spent uh, 20 minutes talking about. But but yeah. unless you really deeply think what, what does it mean in my course to the individuals that, that I actually have at hand, and no one was forced to do that before, I guess, right? Absolutely. You, you could just... forced to do it. You didn't, you know, ten, you, you, uh, you, you, you're, you're getting tenure didn't depend on uh, what you taught online, uh, for example. Right, right. Uh, so we've all been forced to do it, and we will continue to be forced. I think I'm using it positively now for at least the next three years. I mean, this is, an, this is a seismic upheaval. Disruption is too small a word for it, you know. It's affected everything, right? right. So, I mean, but, but, you know, here are some positives. On a personal note, our family of five, we house party, we meet on house party every week, which is a video. Very, I don't know if you meet on house party, it's fascinating. There are quizzes that you can chat like Zoom and so on. In the pre-COVID world, we're also busy with our schedules. We're lucky if you met once every two months. Now we're meeting more often, we're connecting more often. At work, we're meeting, uh, 10 of us meet once a week, one and a half hours. And, you know, they were saying, when we go back to campus, can shall we continue these? And I said, what do you guys want to do? And they said, yes, we're connecting so much more. We're collaborating more, it's more collegial. We will have a, you know, get together once a month, get good food from, you know, Solaniki or Flower or, you know, there are so many places around MIT, right? But there are things coming out that are very positive. And I think that, we that's great. Build on the puzzle. And you know, Trant, uh, being sort of uh, simplistic, 
my one learning from these three and a half months has been it's people. You have to focus on the person, whether it's your family, your colleague, your friends, or student out there, or you know, whoever you're dealing with. This has forced us to force me to focus much more on what am I doing and for whom. So, with that in mind, and and you know, as kind of like a closing question, I and I always ask people this: you know, how do you track? the field that we've been talking about? How do you track trends in the field? But more importantly, in this situation, how do you uh, stay on top of engineering education, not just as a theoretical field, as we've said, but, you know, maybe uh, this uh, podcast will reach educators who are themselves, uh, you know, many uh, who are listening here might be designing engineering education themselves. They might be running courses. Some of them are, are running schools. And, and, and institutes. What is your advice at this current juncture? So you have both implemented now a program, which I'm sure you know, you're know you proud of and have some lessons and there's places you can go online. I'm, I'm definitely going to link up neat. Sure. But where do you, where is this field going? And, and who else is not just thinking actively about the future of engineering education, but also publishing and being transparent enough about it that you can learn from it, discover new things, and as you pointed out, focus on the, on the people. So, so one of the things that I'm finding with the uh, experience of the last three and a half, four months, and it's going to be you know, three years into the future, is that information is getting shared a lot quicker. I mean, if you look at vaccines for COVID-19, you know, the peer-reviewed journals and all that would take years for something to come out. People are sharing it. And, you know, with the professor saying it's not being tested or this is what we understand or don't understand. So I think that's one thing. So, you know, uh, jumping into American Society for Engineering Education conferences or there's a bunch of, you know, th- there's so much happening online. There's an opportunity to learn from a variety of things that sitting in my office on the campus at MIT, I wouldn't have access to just, you know, because of the nature of things. The other thing, you know, I, I, I really, I, I wouldn't presume to... <laughs> giving advice, but here's what we've learned, which may help other people. You have to have a bold vision for what you're trying to do, whether it's at your course or, you know, systemic or whatever. Tinkering around doesn't work. You have to assemble a strong team. I mean, in, in our team, there were two people who founded institution. There was somebody who ran a big department. We are all steeped in MIT's culture. You know, there's a thinking around startup pilot and so on. Right? It doesn't happen by chance. You have to engage stakeholders, industry, students, faculty, you know, what have you. Piloting, I think, is, is essential. Skunk works. We're like, a, we're like a publicly visible community skunk works. Neat, right? That's really what it is. And I think very important, we have to, in academia, think and act like a startup, regardless of which curriculum you're trying to change or transform. Because our traditional way in academia, set up a committee, the committee goes into session, after three years, comes out with a report, which is fantastic, but don't know who's using it or what we're doing. So we have to think more in terms of do something, learn from it, move on, learn from it, hear, you know, listen to people. And I, I'm very optimistic. I think the, you know, the, the pivot and the disruption and the upheaval um, is forcing us to do a few things, which we, you know, initially will resent and are resenting and it's tough to change, but it, it'll head us in the right direction. I think it'll stop being a force as in someone's holding a stick over my head as we start to see the advantages. You cannot replace in-person with virtual. And that's been our biggest problem. We've tried to mimic 
in person through virtual, whether it's this, you know, WebEx or this or that, you can't do it. So that should not even be the approach anymore. Wow, this is fascinating. My last little question will be, you know, if you put your, um, your hat on kind of looking really into the future, will we see new schools coming out of nowhere who are going to pivot around COVID and they're just completely blow everybody out of the water? Or will we see some of the same old names like MIT and Stanford and others reinventing themselves? I mean, is this truly a moment of shakeout for engineering education? Or is it, like you said, it's a seismic upheaval, but by and large, people will emerge from it and institutions will emerge from it largely um, not unscathed, but but changed in kind of more moderate ways. How, this, mm-hmm. how do you see that, Bobby, as a last so I, I see I see that there'll be new institutions coming up. I see that there are institutions like Arizona State University, which was in the benchmarking report, which has a very strong and vibrant uh, distance learning, distance education uh, system already in place. So that's going to get better and more. And I see uh, industry coming in. You know, industry already is training, retraining <laughs> graduates of almost every institution that they hire. That they recruit, right? But I see them getting more engaged you because have just they will less and less be connected podcast, physically with campus. So I think there's going the to be a lot was of the future of engineering education. You know, unfortunately, I think in, in higher ed, there are many institutions that will sort of fold of because they are financially not viable. They were completely reliant on, on tuition. We talked That's about the next big thing. Why should I pay in-person tuition rates for fully virtual education? And I'm glad I don't ever respond to that question. Yeah, and and I think at the end of of our time here, we're not going to start that. It's a can of worms, uh, but it's also a much longer question. And it's a good question, but it's not a simple question. And and it brings up a a lot of different issues. And it'll also depend on on what value you're getting, right? So we have to talk about the the product you're you're being sold MIT. But we have to reimagine the future. I brought that in to Netherlands. We have to reimagine the future and look at every shibboleth, every machines, and more. And my take is that by reimagining education, on that note, Bobby, I thank you so much for for this uh, exciting discussion. I've learned a lot about the future of engineering education. Thank you. Thanks, Brown. Be it's been fascinating. Your question has really got me thinking. So thank you for inviting me. To be Great. Enjoyed. Take care. Now, the realization is that exploration, discovery, and this somewhat nebulous idea of metacognition can all be fostered by a set of tweaks that put the students in charge of their own learning and liberate them to build things from the get-go. Bring it back to real-life challenges. When you add spades of positive reinforcement and blend in thoughtful project-based learning and external speakers that fit the educational context, you can inspire students even more than their professors can do alone. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.